0: Book three, chapters six through ten of *On War*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. *On War* by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Book three, chapter six, Boldness. The place and part which boldness takes in the dynamic system of powers, where it stands opposed to foresight and prudence has been stated in the chapter on the certainty of the result, in order thereby to show that theory has no right to restrict it by virtue of its legislative power. But this noble impulse, with which the human soul raises itself above the most formidable dangers, is to be regarded as an active principle peculiarly belonging to war. In fact, in what branch of human activity should boldness have a right of citizenship if not in war? From the transport driver and the drummer up to the general it is the noblest of virtues, the true steel which gives the weapon its edge and brilliancy. Let us admit, in fact, it has, in war, even its own prerogatives. Over and above the results of the calculation of space, time, and quantity, we must allow a certain percentage which boldness derives from the weakness of others, whenever it gains the mastery. It is, therefore, virtually a creative power." This is not difficult to demonstrate philosophically. As often as boldness encounters hesitation, the probability of the result is of necessity in its favour, because the very state of hesitation implies a loss of equilibrium already. It is only when it encounters cautious foresight, which we may say is just as bold, at all events just as strong and powerful as itself, that it is at a disadvantage. Such cases, however, rarely occur. Out of the whole multitude of prudent men in the world, the great majority are so from timidity. Amongst large masses boldness is a force, the special cultivation of which can never be to the detriment of other forces, because the great mass is bound to a higher will, by the framework and joints of the order of battle and of the service, and therefore is guided by an intelligent power which is extraneous. Boldness is, therefore, here only like a spring held down until action is required. The higher the rank, the more necessary it is that boldness should be accompanied by a reflective mind, that it may not be a mere blind outburst of passion to no purpose, for with the increase of rank it becomes always less a matter of self-sacrifice, and more a matter of the preservation of others, and the good of the whole. Where regulations of the service, as a kind of second nature, prescribed for the masses, reflection must be the guide of the general, and, in his case, individual boldness in action may easily become a fault. Still, at the same time, it is a fine failing, and must not be looked at in the same light as any other. Happy the army, in which untimely boldness frequently manifests itself. It is an exuberant growth, which shows a rich soil. Even foolhardiness, that is, boldness without an object, is not to be despised. In point of fact, it is the same energy of feeling, only exercised as a kind of passion without any cooperation of the intelligent faculties. It is only when it strikes at the root of obedience, when it treats with contempt the orders of superior authority, that it must be repressed as a dangerous evil, not on its own account, but on account of the act of disobedience, for there is nothing in war which is of greater importance than obedience. The reader will readily agree with us that supposing an equal degree of discernment to be forthcoming in a certain number of cases a thousand times as many of them will end in disaster through over-anxiety as through boldness one would suppose it natural that the interposition of a reasonable object should stimulate boldness and therefore lessen its intrinsic merit and yet the reverse is the case in reality the intervention of lucid thought or the general supremacy of the mind deprives the emotional forces of the great part of their power. On that account, boldness becomes of rarer occurrence the higher we ascend the scale of rank. For whether the discernment and the understanding do or do not increase with these ranks, still the commanders, in their several stations as they rise, are pressed upon more and more severely by objective things, by relations and claims from without, so that they become the more perplexed the lower the degree of their individual intelligence. This, so far as regards war, is the chief foundation of the truth of the French proverb, brille, au second, se éclipse, en premier. Almost all the generals, who are represented in history as merely having attained to mediocrity, and as wanting in decision when in supreme command, are men celebrated in their antecedent career for their boldness and decision. In those motives to bold action which arise from the pressure of necessity, we must make a distinction. Necessity has its degrees of intensity. If it lies near at hand, if the person acting is in the pursuit of his object, driven into great dangers in order to escape others equally great, then we can only admire his resolution, which still has also its value. If a young man to show his skill in horsemanship leaps across a deep cleft, then he is bold. If he makes the same leap, pursued by a troop of head-chopping janissaries, he is only resolute." But the farther off the necessity from the point of action, the greater the number of relations intervening which the mind has to traverse in order to realise them, by so much the less does necessity take from boldness in action. If Frederick the Great, in the year 1756, saw that war was inevitable and that he could only escape destruction by being beforehand with his enemies, it became necessary for him to commence the war himself, but at the same time it was certainly very bold, for few men in his position would have made up their minds to do so although strategy is only the province of generals-in-chief or commanders in the higher positions still boldness in all the other branches of an army is as little a matter of indifference to it as their other military virtues with an army belonging to a bold race and in which the spirit of boldness has been always nourished very different things may be undertaken than with one in which this virtue is unknown For that reason we have considered it in connection with an army, but our subject is specially the boldness of the general, and yet we have not much to say about it after having described this military virtue in a general way to the best of our ability. The higher we rise in a position of command, the more of the mind, understanding, and penetration predominate in activity, the more therefore is boldness, which is a property of the feelings, kept in subjection, and for that reason we find it so rarely in the highest positions but then so much the more should it be admired boldness directed by an overruling intelligence is the stamp of the hero this boldness does not consist in venturing directly against the nature of things in a downright contempt of the laws of probability but if a choice is once made in the rigorous adherence to that higher calculation which genius the tact of judgment has gone over with the speed of lightning the more boldness lends wings to the mind and the discernment so much the further will they reach in their flight, so much the more comprehensive will be the view, the more exact the result, but certainly always only in the sense that with greater objects greater dangers are connected. The ordinary man, not to speak of the weak and irresolute, arrives at an exact result so far as is possible without ocular demonstration, at most after diligent reflection in his chamber at a distance from danger and responsibility. Let danger and responsibility draw close round him in every direction, then he loses the power of comprehensive vision, and if he retains this in any measure by the influence of others, he will still lose his power of decision, because in that point no one can help him. We think, then, it impossible to imagine a distinguished general without boldness. That is to say, no man can become one who is not born with this power of the soul and we therefore look upon it as the first requisite for such a career. How much of this inborn power, developed and moderated through education and the circumstances of life, is left when the man has attained a high position, is the second question. The greater this power still is, the stronger will genius be on the wing. The higher will be its flight. The risks become always greater, but the purpose grows with them. Whether its lines proceed out of and get their direction from a distant necessity or whether they converge to the keystone of a building which ambition has planned, whether Frederick or Alexander acts, is much the same as regards the critical view. If the one excites the imagination because it is bolder, the other pleases the understanding most, because it has in it more absolute necessity. We have still to advert to one very important circumstance. The spirit of boldness can exist in an army either because it is in the people, or because it has been generated in a successful war conducted by able generals. In the latter case it must, of course, be dispensed with at the commencement. Now in our days there is hardly any other means of educating the spirit of a people in this respect, except by war, and that too under bold generals. By it alone can the effeminacy of feeling be counteracted, that propensity to seek for the enjoyment of comfort which cause degeneracy in a people, rising in prosperity, and immersed in an extremely busy commerce. A nation can hope to have a strong position in the political world only if its character and practice in actual war mutually support each other in constant reciprocal action. Chapter 7. Perseverance The reader expects to hear of angles and lines, and finds, instead of these citizens of the scientific world, only people out of common life, such as he meets with every day in the street, and yet the author cannot make up his mind to become a hair's-breadth more mathematical than the subject seems to him to require, and he is not alarmed at the surprise which the reader may show. In war, more than anywhere else in the world, things happen differently to what we had expected, and look differently when near to what they did at a distance. With what serenity the architect can watch his work gradually rising and growing into his plan. The doctor, although much more at the mercy of mysterious agencies and chances than the architect, still knows enough of the forms and effects of his means. In war, on the other hand, the commander of an immense whole finds himself in a constant whirlpool of false and true information, of mistakes committed through fear, through negligence, through precipitation, of contraventions of his authority, either from mistaken or correct motives, from ill-will, true or false sense of duty, indolence or exhaustion, of accidents which no mortal could have foreseen. In short, he is the victim of a hundred thousand impressions, of which the most have an intimidating, the fewest an encouraging tendency. By long experience in war, the tact is acquired of readily appreciating the value of these incidents, High courage and stability of character stand proof against them, as the rock resists the beating of the waves. He who would yield to these impressions would never carry out an undertaking, and, on that account, perseverance in the proposed object, as long as there is no decided reason against it, is the most necessary counterpoise. Further, there is hardly any celebrated enterprise in war which was not achieved by endless exertion, pains, and privations, and as here the weakness of the physical and moral man is ever disposed to yield. Only an immense force of will, which manifests itself in perseverance, admired by present and future generations, can conduct to our goal. Chapter 8. Superiority of Numbers This is in tactics, as well as in strategy, the most general principle of victory, and shall be examined by us, first in its generality, for which we may be permitted the following exposition. Strategy fixes the point where, the time when, and the numerical force with which, the battle is to be fought. By this triple determination it has, therefore, a very essential influence on the issue of the combat. If tactics has fought the battle, if the result is over, let it be victory or defeat, strategy makes such use of it as can be made in accordance with the great object of the war. This object is naturally often a very distant one. Seldom does it lie quite close at hand. A series of other objects subordinate themselves to it as means. These objects, which are, at the same time, means to a higher purpose, may be practically of various kinds. Even the ultimate aim of the whole war may be a different one in every case. We shall make ourselves acquainted with these things, according as we come to know the separate objects which they come in contact with and it is not our intention here to embrace the whole subject by a complete enumeration of them, even if that were possible. We therefore let the employment of the battle stand over for the present. Even those things through which strategy has an influence on the issue of the combat, insomuch as it establishes the same, to a certain extent decrees them, are not so simple that they can be embraced in one single view, for as strategy appoints time, place and force, It can do so in practice in many ways, each of which influences in a different manner the result of the combat as well as its consequences. Therefore we shall only get acquainted with this also by degrees, that is, through the subjects which more closely determine the application. If we strip the combat of all modifications which it may undergo according to its immediate purpose and the circumstance from which it proceeds, lastly, if we set aside the valour of the troops, because that is a given quantity, then there remains only the bare conception of the combat, that is, a combat without form, in which we distinguish nothing but the number of the combatants. This number will, therefore, determine victory. Now, from the number of things above deducted, to get to this point, it is shown that the superiority in numbers in a battle is only one of the factors employed to produce victory, that therefore, so far from having with the superiority in number obtained all, or even only the principal thing, we have perhaps got very little by it, according as the other circumstances which cooperate happen to vary. But this superiority has degrees. It may be imagined as twofold, threefold or fourfold, and everyone sees that by increasing it this way it must, at last, overpower everything else. In such an aspect we grant that the superiority in numbers is the most important factor in the result of combat only it must be sufficiently great to be a counterpoise to all the other cooperating circumstances. The direct result of this is that the greatest possible number of troops should be brought into action at the decisive point. Whether the troops thus brought are sufficient or not, we have then done in this respect all that our means allowed. This is the first principle in strategy. Therefore, in general, as now stated, It is just as well suited for Greeks and Persians, or for Englishmen and Marathas, as for French and Germans. But we shall take a glance at our relations in Europe, as respects war, in order to arrive at some more definite idea on this subject. Here we find armies very much more alike in equipment, organisation and practical skill of every kind. There only remains a difference in the military virtues of the armies, and in the talent of the generals, which may fluctuate with time from side to side. If we go through the military history of modern Europe, we find no example of a marathon. Frederick the Great beat 80,000 Austrians at Luthen, with about 30,000 men, and at Rossbach with 25,000, some 50,000 allies. These are, however, the only instances of victories gained against an enemy with double or more than double in numbers. Charles the Twelfth, in the Battle of Narva, we cannot well quote, for the Russians were at that time hardly to be regarded as Europeans. Also, the principal circumstances, even of the battle, are too little known. Bonaparte had at Dresden a 120,000 against 220,000, therefore not the double. At Kolen, Frederick the Great did not succeed with 30,000 against 50,000 Austrians, neither did Bonaparte, in the desperate battle of Leipzig, where he was a 160,000 strong against 280,000. From this we may infer that it is very difficult in the present state of Europe for the most talented general to gain victory over an enemy double his strength. Now, if we see double numbers prove such a weight in the scale against the greatest generals, we may be sure that, in ordinary cases, in small as well as great combats, an important superiority of numbers but which need not be over two to one, will be sufficient to ensure the victory, however disadvantageous other circumstances may be. Certainly we may imagine a defile which even a tenfold would not suffice to force, but in such a case it can be no question of a battle at all. We think, therefore, that under our conditions, as well as in all similar ones, the superiority at the decisive point is a matter of capital importance and that this subject, in the generality of cases, is decidedly the most important of all. The strength at this decisive point depends on the absolute strength of the army, and on the skill of making use of it. The first rule is therefore to enter the field with an army as strong as possible. This sounds like a commonplace. But still, it is really not so. In order to show that for a long time the strength of forces was by no means regarded as a chief point, we need only observe that in most, and even in the most detailed histories of the war in the 18th century, the strength of the armies is either not given at all, or only incidentally, and in no case is any special value laid upon it. Tempelhof, in his History of the Seven Years' War, is the earliest writer who gives it regularly, but at the same time he does it only very superficially. Even Massenbach, in his manifold critical observations of the Prussian campaigns of 1793 and 94, in the Vosges, talks a great deal about hills and valleys, roads and footpaths, but doesn't say a syllable about mutual strength. Another proof lies in the wonderful notion which haunted the heads of many critical historians, according to which there was a certain size of an army which was the best, a normal strength, beyond which the forces in excess were burdensome rather than serviceable. Lastly, there are a number of instances to be found in which all the available forces were not really brought into the battle or into the war, because the superiority of numbers was not considered to have that importance which, in the nature of things, belongs to it. If we are thoroughly penetrated with the conviction that, with a considerable superiority of numbers, everything possible is to be effected, then it cannot fail that this clear conviction reacts on the preparations for the war, so as to make us appear in the field, with as many troops as possible, and either to give us ourselves the superiority, or at least guard against the enemy obtaining it, so much for what concerns the absolute force with which the army is to be conducted. The measure of this absolute force is determined by the government, and although with the determination the real action of the war commences, and it forms an essential part of the strategy of the war, still in most cases the general who is in command of these forces in the war must regard their absolute strength as a given quantity whether it be that he has no voice in fixing it or that circumstances prevented a sufficient expansion being given to it there remains nothing therefore where an absolute superiority is not attainable but to produce a relative one at the decisive point by making skilful use of what we have the calculation of space and time appears to be the most essential thing to this end and this has caused that subject to be regarded as one which embraces nearly the whole art of using military forces Indeed, some have gone so far as to ascribe to great strategists and tacticians a mental organ peculiarly adapted to this point. But the calculation of time and space, although it lies universally at the foundation of strategy, and is to a certain extent its daily bread, is still neither the most difficult nor the most decisive one. If we take an unprejudiced glance at military history, we shall find that the instances in which the mistakes in such a calculation have proved the cause of serious losses are very rare, at least in strategy, but if the conception of a skilful combination of time and space is fully to account for every instance of a resolute and active commander beating several separate opponents with one and the same army, Frederick the Great Bonaparte, then we perplex ourselves unnecessarily with conventional language for the sake of clearness and the profitable use of conceptions. It is necessary that things should always be called by their right names. the right appreciation of their opponents down schwarzenberg the audacity to leave for a short space of time a small force only before them energy enforced marches boldness in sudden attacks the intensified activity which great souls acquire in the moment of danger these are the grounds of such victories and what have these to do with the ability to make an exact calculation of two such simple things as time and space but even this ricocheting play of forces when the victories at rossbach and montmirail give the impulse to victories at leuthen and Montreux, to which generals on the defensive have often trusted is still if we would be clear and exact only a rare occurrence in history much more frequently the relative superiority that is the skilful assemblage of superior forces at the decisive point has its foundation in the right appreciation of those points in the judicious direction which by that means has been given to the forces from the very first and in the resolution required to sacrifice the unimportant to the advantage of the important that is to keep the forces concentrated in an overpowering mass in this frederick the great and Bonaparte are particularly characteristic we think we have now allotted to the superiority in numbers the importance which belongs to it it is to be regarded as the fundamental idea always to be aimed at before all and as far as possible but to regard it on this account as a necessary condition of victory would be a complete misconception of our exposition. In the conclusion to be drawn from it lies nothing more than the value which should attach to the numerical strength in the combat. If that strength is to be made as great as possible, then the maxim is satisfied. A review of the total relations must then decide whether or not the combat is to be avoided for want of sufficient force. Chapter 9 The Surprise. From the subject of the foregoing chapter, the general endeavour to attain a relative superiority, there follows another endeavour which must, consequently, be just as general in its nature. This is the surprise of the enemy. It lies more or less at the foundation of all undertakings, for without it the preponderance at the decisive point is not properly conceivable. Surprise is, therefore, not only the means to the attainment of numerical superiority, but it is also to be regarded as a substantive principle in itself on account of its moral effect. When it is successful in a high degree, confusion and broken courage in the enemy's ranks are the consequences, and of the degree to which these multiply a success, there are examples enough, great and small. We are not now speaking of the particular surprise which belongs to the attack, but of the endeavour by measures generally, and especially by the distribution of forces, to surprise the enemy, which can be imagined just as well in the defensive, and which in the tactical defence particularly is a chief point. We say surprise lies at the foundation of all undertakings without exception, only in very different degrees according to the nature of the undertaking and other circumstances. This difference, indeed, originates in the properties and peculiarities of the army and its commander, in those even of the government. Secrecy and rapidity are the two factors in this product, and these suppose in the government and the commander-in-chief great energy and on the part of the army a high sense of military duty. With effeminacy and loose principles it is vain to calculate upon a surprise. But so general, indeed so indispensable, as is this endeavour, and true as it is, that it is never wholly unproductive of effect, still it is not the less true, that it seldom succeeds to a remarkable degree, and this follows from the nature of the idea itself. We should form an erroneous conception if we believed that by this means chiefly there is much to be attained in war. In idea, it promises a great deal. In the execution, it generally sticks fast by the friction of the whole machine. In tactics, the surprise is very much more at home, for the very natural reason that all times and spaces are on a smaller scale. It will, therefore, in strategy, be the more feasible in proportion as the measures lie nearer to the province of tactics, and more difficult the higher up they lie toward the province of policy. The preparations for a war usually occupy several months. The assembly of an army, at its principal positions, requires generally the formation of depots and magazines and long marches, the object of which can be guessed soon enough. It therefore rarely happens that one state surprises another by a war, or by the direction which it gives the mass of its forces. In the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, when war turned very much upon sieges, It was a frequent aim, and a peculiar and important chapter in the art of war, to invest a strong place unexpectedly, but even that only rarely succeeded. On the other hand, with things which can be done in a day or two, a surprise is much more conceivable, and therefore also it is often not difficult thus to gain a march upon the enemy, and thereby a position, a point of country, a road, and such but it is evident that what surprise gains in this way in easy execution it loses in the efficacy as the greater the efficacy the greater always the difficulty of execution whoever thinks that with such surprises on a small scale he may collect great results as for example the gain of a battle the capture of an important magazine believes in something which is certainly very possible to imagine but for which there is no warrant in history for there are upon the whole very few instances where anything great has resulted from such surprises, from which we may justly conclude that inherent difficulties lie in the way of their successes. Certainly, whoever would consult history on such points must not depend on sundry battle-steeds of historical critics, on their wise dicta and self-complacent terminology, but look at the facts with his own eyes. There is, for instance, a certain day in the campaign in Silesia, 1761, which in this respect has attained a kind of notoriety, It is the 22nd of July, on which Frederick the Great gained on Launden the march to Neusen, near Nyssa, by which, as is said, the junction of the Austrian and Russian armies in Upper Silesia became impossible, and therefore a period of four weeks was gained by the king. Whoever reads over this occurrence carefully in the principal histories, and considers it impartially, will, in the march of the 22nd July, never find this importance. And generally, in the whole of the fashionable logic on this subject, he will see nothing but contradictions. But in the proceedings of Loudon, in this renowned period of manoeuvres, much that is unaccountable. How could one, with a thirst for truth and clear conviction, accept such historical evidence? When we promise ourselves great effects in a campaign from the principle of surprising, we think upon great activity, rapid resolutions, and forced marches, as the means of producing them. But that these things, even when forthcoming in a very high degree, will not always produce the desired effect, we see in examples given by generals whom may be allowed to have had the greatest talent in the use of these means. Frederick the Great and Bonaparte. The first, when he left Dresden, so suddenly in July 1760, and falling upon Lasky, then turned against Dresden, gained nothing by the whole of that intermezzo but rather placed his affairs in a condition notably worse, as the fortress Glatz fell in the meantime. In 1813 Bonaparte turned suddenly from Dresden twice against Blücher, to say nothing of his incursion into Bohemia from Upper Lusatia, and both times without in the least attaining his object. There were blows in the air which only cost him time and force, and might have placed him in a dangerous position in Dresden. Therefore, even in this field, a surprise does not necessarily meet with great success through the mere activity, energy, and resolution of a commander. It must be favoured by other circumstances, but we by no means deny that there can be success. We only connect with it a necessity of favourable circumstances, which certainly do not occur very frequently, and which the commander can seldom bring about himself. Just those two generals afford each a striking illustration of this. We take first Bonaparte in his famous enterprise against Blucher's army in February 1814, when it was separated from the Grand Army and descending the Marne. It would not be easy to find two days' march to surprise the enemy productive of greater results than this. Blucher's army, extended over a distance of three days' march, was beaten in detail, and suffered a loss nearly equal to that of a defeat in a great battle. This was completely the effect of a surprise for if Blucher had thought of such a near possibility of an attack from Bonaparte, he would have organised his march quite differently. To this mistake of Blucher's the result is to be attributed. Bonaparte did not know all these circumstances, and so there was a piece of good fortune that mixed itself up in his favour. It is the same with the Battle of Liegnitz, 1760. Frederick the Great attained this fine victory through altering, during the night, a position which he had just before taken up. Loudon was through this completely surprised, and lost seventy pieces of artillery and ten thousand men. Although Frederick the Great had at this time adopted the principle of moving backwards and forwards in order to make a battle impossible, or at least to disconcert the enemy's plans, still the alteration of position on the night of the fourteenth and fifteenth was not made exactly with that intention, but as the king himself says, because the position of the fourteenth did not please him. Here, therefore, also chance was hard at work. Without this happy conjunction of the attack and the change of position in the night, and the difficult nature of the country, the result would not have been the same. Also in the higher and highest province of strategy, there are some instances of surprises fruitful in results. We shall only cite the brilliant marches of the great elector against the Swedes from Franconia to Pomerania, and from the Mark, Brandenburg, to the Priegel in 1757, and the celebrated passage of the Alps by Bonaparte, eighteen hundred in the latter case an army gave up its whole theatre of war by a capitulation and in seventeen fifty seven another army was very near giving up its theatre of war and itself as well lastly as an instance of a war wholly unexpected we may bring forth the invasion of silesia by frederick the great great and powerful are here the results everywhere but such events are not common in history if we do not confuse them with cases in which a state For want of activity and energy, Saxony, 1756, and Russia, 1812, has not completed its preparations in time. Now, there still remains an observation which concerns the essence of the thing. A surprise can only be effected by that party which gives the law to the other, and he who is in the right gives the law. If we surprise the adversary by a wrong measure, then instead of reaping good results, we may have to bear a sound blow in return, and in any case... The adversary need not trouble himself much about our surprise. He has, in our mistake, the means of turning off the evil. As the offensive includes in itself much more positive action than the defensive, so the surprise is certainly more in its place with the assailant. But by no means invariably, as we shall hereafter see. Mutual surprises by the offensive and defensive may therefore meet, and then that one will have the advantage who has hit the nail on the head the best. So should it be. But practical life does not keep to this line so exactly, and that for a very simple reason. The moral effects which attend a surprise often convert the worst case into a good one for the side they favour, and do not allow the other to make any regular determination. We have here in view, more than anywhere else, not only the chief commander, but each single one, because a surprise has the effect in particular of greatly loosening unity so that the individuality of each separate leader easily comes to light. Much depends here on the general relation in which the two parties stand to each other. If the one side, through a general moral superiority, can intimidate and outdo the other, then he can make use of the surprise with more success, and even reap good fruit where properly he should come to ruin. Chapter 10. Stratagem Stratagem implies a concealed intention. And therefore is opposed to straightforward dealing in the same way as wit is the opposite of direct proof it has therefore nothing in common with the means of persuasion of self-interest of force but a great deal to do with deceit because that likewise conceals its object it is itself a deceit as well when it is done but still it differs from what is commonly called deceit in this respect that there is no direct breach of word the deceiver by stratagem leaves it to the person himself, whom he is deceiving, to commit the errors of understanding which at last, flowing into one result, suddenly change the nature of things in his eyes. We may therefore say, as wit is sleight of hand with ideas and conceptions, so stratagem is sleight of hand with actions. At first it appears as if strategy had not improperly derived its name from stratagem, and that, with all the real and apparent changes which the whole character of war has undergone since the time of the Greeks, This term still points to its real nature. If we leave to tactics the actual delivery of the blow, the battle itself, and look upon strategy as the art of using this means with skill, then besides the forces of the character, such as burning ambition which always presses like a spring, a strong will which hardly bends, and such and such, there seems no subjective quality so suited to guide and inspire strategic activity as stratagem. The general tendency to surprise, treated of in the foregoing chapter, points to this conclusion, for there is a degree of stratagem, be it ever so small, which lies at the foundation of every attempt to surprise. But however much we feel a desire to see the actors in war outdo each other in hidden activity, readiness and stratagem, still we must admit that these qualities show themselves but little in history, and have rarely been able to work their way to the surface from amongst the mass of relations and circumstances. The explanation of this is obvious, and it is almost identical with the subject matter of the preceding chapter. Strategy knows no other activity than the regulating of combat with the measures which relate to it. It has no concern, like ordinary life, with the transactions which consist merely of words, that is, in expressions, declarations, and such. But these, which are very inexpensive, are chiefly the means with which the wily one takes in those he practises upon. That which there is like it in war, plans and orders given merely as make-believers, False reports sent on purpose to the enemy is usually of so little effect in the strategic field that it is only resorted to, in particular cases, which offer of themselves. Therefore cannot be regarded as spontaneous action which emanates from the leader. But such measures as carrying out the arrangements for a battle, so far as to impose upon the enemy, require a considerable expenditure of time and power. Of course, the greater the impression to be made, the greater the expenditure in these respects and as this is usually not given for the purpose very few demonstrations so-called in strategy affect the object for which they are designed in fact it is dangerous to detach large forces for any length of time merely for a trick because there is always the risk of its being done in vain and then these forces are wanted at the decisive point the chief actor in war is always thoroughly sensible of this sober truth and therefore he has no desire to play at tricks of agility The bitter earnestness of necessity presses so fully into direct action that there is no room for that game. In a word, the pieces on the strategical chessboard want that mobility which is the element of stratagem and subtlety. The conclusion that we draw is that a correct and penetrating eye is a more necessary and more useful quality for a general than craftiness, although that also does no harm if it does not exist at the expense of necessary qualities of heart, which is only too often the case. But the weaker the forces which are under the command of strategy, so much the more they become adapted for stratagem, so that, to the quite feeble and little, for whom no prudence, no sagacity is any longer sufficient, at the point where all art seems to forsake him, stratagem offers itself as a last resource. The more helpless his situation, the more everything presses toward one single desperate blow, the more readily stratagem Comes to the aid of his boldness. Let loose from all further calculations, freed from all concern for the future, boldness and stratagem intensify each other, and thus collect at one point an infinitesimal glimmering of hope into a single ray, which may likewise serve to kindle a flame. End of book three, chapters six through ten. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.